Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today the latest October jobs report came out. We want to talk about that because it is uh, directly related to uh, the Federal Reserve rate hike this past week and future rate hikes coming. We want to talk about the Fed. Why is it continuing to raise rates at 75 basis points? That's like three-quarter of 1% every time on its base policy rate called the federal funds rate. Why is it continue, continuing at that pace to raise rates? And will it continue in December at its next meeting to raise rates even more? What are the consequences for inflation in the U.S.? and for the global economy of further rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. Will the Fed slow its rate, i.e. the stock market and financier types say it will pivot to a slower rate? They've believed that for four months now. They, meaning speculators and institutional investors, uh, finance capitalists, right, drive the stock markets and other financial markets. Right. They believe the Fed's going to, quote, pivot and slow down. Well, it hasn't slowed down. Will it? Or will it continue through December and after? Well, we'll talk about that, too. And the consequences that we can see already beginning to occur globally as a result of Fed rate hikes, especially in Europe and the U.K., number one basket case of capitalist system globally, and also Japan and elsewhere. Okay, we'll talk about that too. Fed consequences, rate hike consequences. Will further rate, rate hike slow inflation in the U.S.? Well, we'll see next week. Uh, you know, we get the next CPI report next week. And then we will get another uh, jobs report first Monday in December. And then the Fed will then consider what it's going to do next. But, you know, we got to ask ourselves, do Fed rate hikes really slow inflation? So far, doesn't look like it. Well, you know, as they say, uh, monetary policy Fed rate hikes uh, have an effect with a lag. You know, in the past, the lag used to be six to nine months, but now I hear hear uh, commentators talking about oh, 24 months before it really has a impact. I don't know. They don't either. What the lag actually is, but you know, there are consequences of Fed rate hikes for the real economy, jobs, and so forth. How effective is it in dealing with inflation? You know, Economic 101, mainstream bourgeois economics says, oh, you know, you raise interest rates, the economy slows down, right? And if it slows down, then there's less demand, less spending, and that brings inflation down. Oh, inflation is demand-driven. Not this one. This one is supply-driven, and we'll talk about that, especially the latest addition to the supply factors driving inflation productivity collapse going on in the U.S. economy, the worst since 1982. Okay, well, we'll talk about how that plays into 
the supply side factors driving inflation, which the Fed can't do a damn thing about. The Fed can impact the demand side forces driving inflation by precipitating a deep recession, but it can't do a damn thing about supply side. So why are the capitalists just relying on monetary policy and the Fed not doing anything to slow inflation, you know, like uh, uh, maybe price controls or on monopolies or breaking up the monopolies or a windfall profits tax on the monopolies who are price gouging us all across the spectrum here, driving prices even higher. Yeah, well, okay, we'll get we'll get to all that. I just can't resist going there early, I guess. And then I want to finish the show talking about the midterm elections next week. You know, and uh, what inflation and the Fed and all this has to do with the outcome. Well, brief preview, as James Carville, a Democrat advisor for Bill Clinton, I don't like the guy, but uh, he said it correctly back then, uh, and it's true now, it's the economy stupid, and the Democrats are too stupid to realize it. Well, I think they're getting the message finally, but it's a little too late. They think all they got to do is is keep peddling this January 6th theater going on that no one gives a damn about, except the Beltway folks. Uh, And then, of course, uh, uh, the Supreme Court and, you know, its horrible decision there about uh, reproductive rights. Yeah, that's mobilizing a certain amount of people. Uh, but uh, that's not enough, because far more people in the polls are concerned about inflation in the economy and crime. Those are the issues. Anyway, we'll get to that. We'll talk about the election, midterms, and possible outcomes, and what all that will mean at the end of the show. So let's uh, slide back and uh, start with the jobs report. Okay, jobs came out. 261,000 net new jobs. Well, you know, Biden says, oh, these are jobs that are created. He created them. Created. No, these aren't new jobs. These are jobs that were out there. And during COVID and collapse of the real economy, you know, people got laid off from and now they're returning to still, you know, the economy only really started opening, opening up in May, April, May of this year. And it's continued getting some momentum. I think that momentum's about to end. Because if you look at the economy, I talked about GDP last week, you know, what do you see? Oh, you see services grow, growing, you know, because people were deprived from spending on services during the COVID period. Uh, but goods, the goods production side is not growing that much. You know, manufacturing is pretty much stagnant, barely growing. Some parts of the country slowing and stagnating. And housing, you know, is collapsing. It's in a funk. We've had eight months of contraction in the housing sector. Mortgage rates are way over 7%. So, 
you know, where 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 is the uh, the push coming from in the economy? Well, it's coming in services. As the economy opened over the summer, yes, people started, you know, going out to eat and traveling and entertainment and so forth after being deprived for two years. And yes, they started spending on that. And the service companies, you know, started gouging the hell of us out of us because they knew it. They could do it. People were desperate, paid whatever the airline's tickets were, regardless. Paid whatever the the price of the gasoline per gallon was over the summer. So, you know, they were spending on that. But, you know, uh, if you look at it, it's not because they were getting big wage increases. Yeah, they were finally getting paid. So that was an increase in income, wage income, to spend. They were getting paid. But their pay wasn't really going up, except the very top 10% of the workforce. Yeah, they were getting them raises, but the rest of the people weren't. They were just getting their jobs back. They might have been working their third jobs to add to their family income, but their wages weren't really rising that much. They've been spending on credit cards. Look at the credit card numbers. Big increase in credit card spending. Yeah, not wage, income, growth, spending, unless they were working second, third jobs, but credit cards. Well, that can't be sustained. You know, this is the first Christmas people will actually be traveling and buying stuff for their family, extended family. Uh, so, you know, they're trying to get back to 2019. And they're spending. But it's not going to last because the prices are going up, up, up across the board. Yeah, we're way double-digit prices for rents, food items of all kinds. You know, if you've been going to the supermarket, what I'm talking about. My wife won't even go anymore. So, yeah, food prices are going through the roof, especially those processed foods, meats, so forth, breads, dairy, that are really captured by, by monopolistic corporations in the U.S. They can jack their prices up and they're doing it, price gouging the hell out of us, and especially oil companies. We'll talk about that a little bit. Why oil prices are going to go up again. And by oil prices, I don't mean just gasoline at the pump. Watch what happens with natural gas. What's your next natural gas bill? Hmm? Or your home heating oil bill if you live in the Northeast. Hmm? Truckers know diesel prices going through the roof. Railroads raising diesel prices, but raising prices because of diesel going up. And then some. You see, when these monopolistic corporations raise their prices, uh, it's not just to cover their cost increase increases because of you know, down down the pipeline there, people are uh, raising their costs. But they use it as an excuse to mark up a little bit further, you know, get a little bit further touch on the profit margin there. They're all doing that because they can. Price gouging is rampant from oil and energy, utilities, all across the board, food processing, all across the board here. And we're really 
around 10%, not the 8.2 or 3 because of the way we calculate inflation here in the U.S. Europe, by the way, is way over 10%. Just came in, yeah. Germany, I think it's like 12%. And, it, and the big cost of energy hasn't really hit them yet. It's going to forecast our inflation in the U.K. is going to be 17 20% by the end of the winter. Okay. All right, let's go back to jobs. Let's go before we go on to inflation and the Fed. Let's go back to jobs. Job report: two hundred sixty-one thousand new jobs created last month, <clears throat> compares to five hundred twenty-eight thousand in July. But remember, these aren't new jobs created. These are jobs that people left and they're coming back to. It's not a net creation of jobs. It's a return to jobs. Robert Biden says he's created these jobs. No, he hasn't. Okay. And most of it's just because of the economy opening, reopening again. Okay. Unemployment rate up uh, from 3.5% to 3.7%. Let's talk about these two numbers. The 261,000 jobs reported, quote, created, unquote, and the unemployment rate, 3.7%. As I've said before, but it deserves some explanation once again, the Labor Department has two surveys for its jobs numbers. The one survey is called the Establishment Survey. This is where 400,000 or so large corporations send the data to the Labor Department on their hires and their layoffs and, you know, breaking it down, segmenting it, you know, by uh, age and by ethnic and whatever. Uh, This is data that these large corporations send to the Labor Department. That's not what you get when they report it. I'll explain why. But there's another survey from the Labor Department called the Population Survey. This is the survey where the Labor Department interviews, calls, interviews 60,000 people every month. This is statistically, you know, valid survey with that kind of a, of a, a population sample. Okay, 60,000. And, you know, next month it's a different 60,000 some, you know, to some extent, and they, they keep rotating people in and out on the survey. Okay, so 60,000 on the survey. If that second survey, population survey, is the survey in which you get the unemployment data. You don't get it from the first establishment, large corporation survey. You only get it from the 60,000 survey, telephone survey. Okay? Oh, but what you hear is, oh, They give us the number from the large corporation survey, the 261,000, and then they give us the unemployment percent from the other survey, the 3.7. Well, that ought to raise some questions immediately anyway. Well, let's look at both of those numbers, 261,000 and 3.7, first of all. The 261,000 
and 3.7 are statistics. They aren't raw data. They aren't actual numbers of people or jobs or unemployed. They're not the actual number. They're a statistic. A statistic is a methodology, assumption, and operation on the raw data. It's not the actual number of jobs. It's a statistical manipulation. Well, what's the manipulation? There's several manipulations they do on that 261. What are some of them? Well, one is seasonality. They adjust it, the raw data, based upon the time of year, the seasonality. By the way, COVID has screwed up all the seasonality, in my opinion. Okay. What's the other major manipulation on the 261? It's called the new business formation assumption. What is that? New business formation. Every, every month in the U.S. economy, several hundred thousand new companies are formed. And several hundred thousand exit, disappear, go out of business. The difference is the net, net new business formation. Now, when you're in a deep recession, like we were under COVID, you're going to have a hell of a lot more exiting, going out of business, than people are forming new businesses. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get a positive net new business development number. But when you start coming out of a recession, like we did last spring, reopening the economy, you get a lot of new businesses forming for the first time. And you don't have as many going out of business because they already went out of business during the recession. So you get a big positive gap of new businesses created. And, of course, there's assumptions about what's the average number of new employees associated with each new business. You know, whether most of these are very small, you know, proprietorships and just a couple employees, but some are even larger. Anyway, there's a long-term historical average of uh, how many employees per each new business form. Okay, so far so good. Now the problem is, in the spring we had a lot of businesses created and hardly any not created. Not any, but, you know, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands. The other problem with this is, why, while uh, businesses have to form, uh, have to submit a form to the states when they start up, into new business formation. There's a record of that. The state sent it to the government. Uh, there is no real accurate record for businesses that go out of business, who exit. I mean, think about it. All right, I'll file, you know, some forms when I start up my business. But when I go out of business, you know, oh, the hell with it. I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm not going to report to the government. I'm just out of business. So they never know how many really go out of business. Well, how do they come up with that number? Oh, just an assumption on a historical average long term. So they plug in a number for businesses that went out of business, and they get a number for businesses that are starting up, 
And the difference is the new business raw data, actual number, they send that new business formation data over to the Labor Department. The Labor Department mixes that data with the data sent from the large corporations, puts it together, and then does statistical operations on it, seasonality, and so forth that we were talking about. In other words, what we've got six to nine months after the opening of the economy and the big growth of new businesses in the spring uh, is an overestimation of the actual number of new business of, of uh, total new employment. The two sixty one thousand is overestimated, in my opinion, because of the nature of this new business formation that's picked up from six to nine months ago. It's not new business formation now. It's six to nine months ago added to the current large corporations data they sent to the government. We get an overestimation. Yeah. And seasonality overestimates it too because, you know, at this time of year, people get hired part-time, whatever. Yeah. And by the way, the government, when it says, oh, you know, a new job, filled. They don't care if it's a part-time job. It's one. It's one. It's a new job, right? Whether it's a full-time or part-time. It's a new job. Look, you know, bottom line, the establishment corporate survey says the 261,000 added last month. But if you look at the population survey, which looks at more smaller businesses, what we get is a decline in employment between September and October of 328,000. So one survey says, oh, we added 261. The other survey says, oh, we lost 328. Go figure. You feel comfortable with that? I never did. Oh, but the media will only report the positive of the 261. They always report the establishment number, establishment survey number. They never report the total employment gain or loss in the population survey. But they do report the unemployment rate in the population survey, the 3.7, because the first establishment survey doesn't have any unemployment data. We do report that. That's the 3.7. But once again, the 3.7 is only full-time workers. If you looked at part-time and other dropouts and so forth, you get what's called the U-6 unemployment rate, not the 3.7, which is the U-3 unemployment rate. If you finally count part-timers and so forth, temps and so forth, you get to Guess what? 6.8%. From 3.7, you get 6.8%. That's almost twice as many. So, you know, if you were being accurate, even using the government's own data, if you were media and you were reporting the unemployment rate, wouldn't you want to report all the unemployment, not just full-time? The part-timers lost the job, too? The 6.8, not the 3.7? They don't do it. They just give you a cherry pick, the best number to make it look the least bad <laughs> or the best, right? That's what they do. So in short, 
is really only about half, because even the 6.8 is underestimated, in my opinion. It's only half of those who are out there who are unemployed. Only half. And the 261,000, well, you want to believe that or you want to believe the negative 328? I don't know. Take your pick. These are some of the problems, you know. Seasonality adjustments, new business development assumptions, part-time jobs not covered. Okay, a lot of uh, what jobs that were were gained back um, is because of service sector demand, and that's going to, as inflation continues and unemployment rises because of recession deepening, uh, that's going to disappear, services demand, right? If we look at housing, housing, as I said, is already in an eight-month funk. Mortgage rates well over 7%. <clears throat> Unemployment clearly rising. Uh, we can see it uh, spilling over into the tech sector. You know, over the summer, big tech companies said, oh, we have a freeze on hire. Well, now they're laying off. Meta, Meta Facebook is laying off. Amazon will. Amazon stopped hiring. Amazon will lay off after the holiday rush. Starting in December, watch. Microsoft, Twitter, a lot of small tech companies already laying off. Now, Apple hasn't yet because Apple, you know, is propped up by uh, China demand. Uh, Okay, so it's spilling over the tech. It's spilling at as part of this tech spillover, um, it's uh, spilling over to manufacturing. Manufacturing data uh, is uh, close to flat. Manufacturing output is pretty much stagnant in the U.S. Some companies are still hiring some, uh, but it's very minimal. You know, there's not much hiring going on in manufacturing, and it's soon going to reverse. Uh, it's a very interest rate sensitive sector. Manufacturing, unlike services, okay. And what's also happening in manufacturing now is a rise in unit labor costs. What is that? Well, it's the cost of producing one unit of whatever product they produce. What determines unit labor costs? Well, the cost of unit labor might rise because of a wage increase, but we don't have much wage increases going on. To say we got wage increases at the top end, top 10% of the occupation labor force. Oh, they report an average increase. Well, that's because it's skewed to the very top. Brings out a positive average, but most of it's going to the top. Okay, unit labor costs determined by wages and also determined by productivity. Two factors drive unit labor costs. Productivity in the U.S. is collapsing. Productivity growth for the last three consecutive quarters, and there was so far throughout 2022, has been contracting. It's reversing, it's contracting. Productivity is falling because businesses aren't really investing and haven't been to expand and they're not going to. 
Okay, so productivity is falling. When productivity falls, unit labor cost rises, and guess what? If your cost rises, what do you do as a company? You try to pass it on, and price increases. If you can't pass it on, what do you do? You lay people off. That's what you do, right? So unit labor costs, watch. After the holidays, with this productivity collapse, you're going to see a lot of layoffs in services as well as manufacturing. We are on the cusp of major layoffs here. Okay, so um, housing, we got layoffs. Tech is just beginning. Manufacturing is coming right behind it. That only leaves services out there in 2023. As people get laid off and inflation continues, guess what? That's going to happen. Yeah, same thing's going to happen. Service companies are going to start laying people off. Well, inflation. Unemployment. Together, they constitute what's called stagflation. You, stagflation is when you have prices still rising, even though you have more unemployed. You have a stagnant economy and an inflating economy at the same time. They're not supposed to both do it at the same time, according to Econ 101. But when they do, you've got a double whammy. Inflation. Can the Fed bring down inflation? That's the question. Or another way, of phrasing the same thing. How much can the Fed bring down the inflation rate? At what cost? In unemployment. As I've said many times on this show, inflation is due to supply problems, not just demand. I mean, anybody that Econ 1A knows it's supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. It's not just demand. So what are the supply factors? You know, you reduce supply, prices rise. When you increase demand, prices rise. Okay, what are the supply factors? I.e., what is reducing the supply of goods and services? Well, global supply chains that's been mending a little bit except in the area of industrial commodities but you know but the global supply chains are still in trouble they haven't been i mean that's one of the big legacies of covid they whacked the supply chains and whacked the labor markets too and soon the financial market but anyway uh you know, global supply chains are a problem in restricting supply, especially when you overlay on top of that uh, Biden's sanctions on Russia, sanctions especially on energy, oil and gas, right? But also industrial commodities, you know, metals in particular, you know, metals like nickel and palladium and so forth, necessary for cars and electric car batteries and catalytic converters and all that stuff. You know, some of these these metals you don't hear much about, aluminum, etc. Right? Important 
industrial metals for goods production, producing goods, hmm? uh, and even agricultural goods sanctions, sanctions on fertilizer, which is one of the biggest provider fertilizers, especially to uh, emerging market countries. Agricultural commodities. Now, the thing you got to understand is, is these commodities, whether it's oil or natural gas or industrial metals or agricultural commodities, are all bought and sold in global markets using the dollar only. You can only buy this stuff with dollars. Now, if the U.S. dollar is rising, that means you've got to spend more of your currency to buy the same goods. Your currency is devaluating if the dollar is revaluating going up, and you have to pay more to buy it. Okay. Oh, pay more. Oh, price increase. Inflation. Same thing. Right? The global capitalist economy is run by the USFA. It has a global economic empire. The U.S. dollar is the linchpin to that empire. Controlling the dollar and then its value, pushing it up and down, is the way the U.S. forces other countries uh, to bend to its economic will. Now, when you sanction... Russia, which is one of the major producers in the world of oil and gas, industrial metals, agricultural commodities, hmm? what you do is force the price up of these commodities. In fact, the price goes up even before there is an actual shortage. How does that happen? Because these commodities are bought and sold on global markets with dollars only. You have this group of brokers called financial speculators in futures markets for commodities. Yeah, these are capitalists, usually associated with the banks and shadow banks and so forth, right? If they think there's going to be a shortage of whatever, of, let's say, uh, a palladium because of the sanctions, they think is going to be going to be a shortage, even before there is one. That's what they do. They jack up the price, the market price, or nickel, you know, used in batteries everywhere. Okay, they jack up the price. Yeah, and then of course the companies that buy these uh, these commodities, wherever they may be. You know, they tend to be monopolistic and they just pass the costs on and put a little markup on top of it. Yeah. So inflation on the supply side is directly the result of sanctions imposed by the U.S. on Russia. The sanctions hit Europe and Japan harder. The other G7 economies, it hits them harder. Why does it hit them harder? Uh, because their currency is collapsing. Why is their currency collapsing? Because the dollar is rising. Why is the dollar rising? Because the Fed is raising interest rates. 
this forces these countries to raise their own interest rates to try to dampen the effect, the inflationary effect of the dollar rise. They raise their interest rates too. Now you raise your interest rates, you slow down your economy. So the Fed is causing a lot of this inflation in Europe and Japan because the dollar is depressing their own currencies of these countries, raising import prices. And these countries respond by raising interest rates. So the Fed is causing recession in these economies as well as inflation. But you don't hear much about that analysis, do you, in the media? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a, a lot of the, uh, Europe's problems, and they got big problems, is made in the USA. They don't say much about that, the elites anyway, right? Oh, but the people are saying something about that. They're all in the streets, but you don't hear about that either. Big demonstrations, you know, in the major cities of Europe going on now, and they'll get worse. Not a word in the media in the U.S. Not a word. Do they show the demonstrations, you know, on the evening news in Paris and Prague and places like that? Do they show it? No. No, they don't want you to think that someone figured out, well, maybe the U.S. is responsible for putting the squeeze on Europe. Yeah. That will make Europe more dependent on the U.S. economically and politically. That was part of why Biden and the U.S. empire provoked this conflict with Russia, you know, lured them in to Ukraine. It's just what they wanted. That's an excuse for the U.S. to restore hegemony over NATO, which was in, in trouble under Trump, politically, right? and to drive Russia totally out of Europe, not just in energy, but in everywhere else, so U.S. corporations could step into the vacuum and make Europe even more economically dependent on the U.S. than it already was. Yeah. This is the empire restoring its control. Some people say, you know, U.S. empire is in trouble, being challenged. And, yeah, there are some indications of challenges beginning to occur. But I say the empire has embarked upon a super-aggressive period, resorting to military action and economic war, i.e. sanctions, against anybody who wants to break loose and be independent from the U.S. economic global hegemony. And this has been going on since the early 2000s. You know, all these wars. Think about it. All these wars we've been in. Constant major warfare going on. Constant. I think the neocons got their claws into foreign policy and the system, and, uh, you know, neocons want war. Uh, they, they got it after 9-11, but they were, you know, Bill Clinton had opened the door to him already. Bill couldn't keep his damn zipper closed, and they, he didn't want to get impeached, so he gave anybody whatever they want. Wanted, you know? He gave Citibank the opportunity to merge with travelers and other shadow banks, and uh, he deregulated <clears throat> all of them. He gave China, you know, preferred nation trading rights, and he opened the floodgate door for 
foreign worker visas coming into the tech industry. You know, it can go on. You know, in my most recent book, Scourging the Liberalism, there's a whole chapter just on Clinton, as there is on the other presidents. And, uh, you know, it documents all this stuff that happened. Well, part of what happened at the end of his term was he just let the, the neocons run amok, and they just continued under George Bush. And they've been there ever since. Yeah. War after war after war. Here. It never stops, you know. And after they had, uh, you know, done everything they could, they made all the money they could off of uh, Afghanistan war, they finally pull out of that. And why did he pull out so quickly there, man? In August 2020, he just sort of... Put everybody in a heat, Biden. Maybe on a plane, send him home. Why? Because he was planning and he had plans that the next war was going to be Ukraine. And all through the second half of 2021, the U.S. was, was building up, preparing for that war, provoking Russia, refusing to meet, even talk with Putin here about the U.S. telling Zelensky hey, it's okay to join NATO, you know, just raise it. We would like you to join NATO. And then Zelensky starts talking about that. And uh, Zelensky then starts talking about, oh, we want nuclear arms back, you know, and the U.S. doesn't say anything about that. And uh, Putin gets uh, really pushed out of shape, and he tells the U.S. in December 21, hey, let's talk about this, and the U.S. doesn't even reply to him and starts putting sanctions that was their reply in December and January. They wanted Putin to invade. I wrote an article about it last in January of this year entitled 10 Reasons Why the U.S. May Want Russia to Invade Ukraine. Go read it. It's on my blog, jackrasmus.com, or in Counterpunch, or in various places. Yeah. L.A. Progressive, where I write as well. European Financial Review, World Review of Political Economy, you know, all these places, Zenet. Yeah, they, they sucked them in on purpose. They, they lured them in. They knew what they were doing, just like they lured the Russians when they were Soviets into Afghanistan in 1979-80. Yeah, that was a setup, too. Carter, President Carter's buddy, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski there, came to Carter, and this is according to his big news memoir. In July 79, said Carter, you know, let's uh, let's lure the Soviets into uh, Afghanistan and let's destabilize Afghanistan and suck them in and then we'll give all the arms to the Mujahideen and fight the Russians and bleed them. That's exactly what they did. Yeah, they started the destabilization in the summer of 79. Uh, the government in Afghanistan at the time then called in Russia at the end of 79. Russia doesn't go in until 1980. And then, of course, the rest is history. And uh, Russia gets bled economically and militarily, played a role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, you know, they resurrected the same damn thing, the Democrats. This is Brzezinski's 2.0. Lure them in and then keep that war going. The U.S. doesn't want to settle that war. They want a protracted war. They want to bleed the hell out of uh, 
And the U.S. defense companies don't want it either because, you know, they're pumping this stuff out and giving it not only to Ukraine but to all the Eastern Europe countries, you know, all the latest arms and so forth. You know, they're making a killing even more than the oil companies. Yeah. So uh, that was going to go on and on and on. And we got off message here a little bit. Let's uh, get back to talk about inflation and the Fed. We're talking about supply factors here. And, of course, the war is a factor in restricting supply. And if we're driving up prices with industrial commodities, agricultural commodities, because the speculators are buying these in open markets and so forth, you know, as well as supply chains. Okay. And even for an actual uh, reduction of supply, you know, the speculators, commodity future speculators are jacking up the prices, right? And then uh, monopolistic uh, oil companies uh, pass through uh, the higher prices uh, uh, raised by the speculators and they gouge us, right? Uh, let's look at what happened to the U.S. Uh, oil energy over the summer, right? Well, first of all, they jack up the price, uh, they, the oil companies, and uh, gasoline, just as we're driving a lot over the summer, right? And then, you know, you get a big uh, ground-style public in indignation, and, uh, and uh, then they slow down when Congress starts doing hearings on their price gouging, though they back off of, the, of gasoline. Uh, but, you know, by producing more gasoline... Uh, they produce less other forms of oil, refined oil. They started when producing more gasoline here at the end of the summer meant producing less diesel. Trucks and railroads need diesel. Now there's a shortage of diesel, and diesel prices going through the roof. Oh, what's next? Home heating oil, natural gas. They purposely not uh, increase the output of that airline fuel, benzene, right? All of these are substitutable forms of, of, of refined oil, uh, even chemicals. You know, our, I think our largest export, U.S. export, is oil-based, petroleum-based chemicals. In other words, processed oil, chemicals of various sorts, either that or agriculture or uh, Military hardware. I'm not sure which one. I think agriculture is first, and then the chemicals is next. Well, that's oil. And if you're uh, using your crude oil to uh, refine it for for chemicals for export, well, then there's less for gasoline, right? Or diesel or home heating oil, right? All of that. Well, the oil companies are playing the game with us and the government. Uh, That game is... um, Keep the output supply low. Uh, and you can play that game by not pumping oil out of the ground. There's a huge glut of oil in the U.S. in the ground. They simply won't produce it uh, because they've kept the refinery sector of the industry on a tightrope. In other words, the U.S. hasn't produced any refineries in years. And now, there's a bottleneck in the refineries. If you're going to produce more gas, you're going to produce less diesel and home heating oil and vice versa. And now there's a factor 
On top of all this, it looks like after this party Congress, China is going to walk away from its zero COVID policy and open up its economy. That increases the demand for global crude, which drives the price up. And we've got the price going up, don't we? Yeah, it's over $90 a barrel now. Soon we'll go over $100 a barrel once again. That combined with refinery problems in the United States means the price for all these forms of energy, gas, diesel, home heating, chemicals, airline, are going to go up once again. And when they go up, uh, then, you know, the cost of energy goes up for all of the kinds of corporations and businesses, not just consumers, and they raise their prices. So inflation is not going away. If it's already more than half the supply side, what I've just described to you is supply side forces that are continuing, in some cases exacerbating. Yeah. Hmm. On top of that, you've got demand side factors. You know, the reopening of the economy six months ago, uh, and particularly the consumer shift to services, drive service prices up. And credit card spending, as people, you know, are tired of two years and tightening their belt, they're spending, they're using credit cards even more, right? Uh, this is the first post-COVID holiday season we've had, and you're going to have more spending as a result, right? And the winter effects, watch natural gas also go up. Wait till you get your next natural gas utility bill. You think gas prices were bad. You wait. And then, of course, it's all even worse in Europe than these supply and demand forces I've just talked about because Europe has the further problem of its currency collapse and therefore import prices rising. And the smaller countries in Europe and elsewhere uh, are more dependent on imports. They buy more imports than we do. So in order to buy the same amount of imports, with a currency, a euro, whatever that's worth far less, it's a de facto price increase for them. Right? And now we're going to have more sanctions even on Russia right? as the war in Ukraine intensifies. And China reopening, as I said, will cause an increase in the role of demand in these industrial commodities and energy goods. Okay, so the Fed comes along. The Fed's going to try to do something about this. It just keeps jacking up interest rates. So our basis points, right? It's at 4% now. You know, a year ago, it was like zero. It's at 4% now. And it's going to go up another 50, 75 points here. They're almost at this 5%. And I've been saying since 2017 in my book, Central Bankers at the End of the Ropes, they can't go over 5% without precipitating financial instability. Think about it. All the massive debt a lot of companies and government entities have accumulated over the last decade now has to be paid. And with interest rates rising, it takes more to pay. Well, if you've got a recession, the revenues aren't coming in to pay the more because interest rates are rising, and uh, companies then default. 
I can't pay the principal and interest. No, I'm just got to pay a default. Whoop. If you default, there goes the, the value of your company down. And if enough default spreads contagion, well, then you've got a financial uh, asset deflation, a big proportion going on. And that's financial instability because some of them go beyond default. They go bankrupt and disappear, and then it spreads to others. Okay, uh, that's coming if they keep raising beyond 5%. But some are saying, some business people saying, oh, 5% is going to be the terminal rate. And that was the high point. And in this uh, meeting here this week, the Fed pretty much said, uh, stop focusing on the 75%. What you need to focus on is the terminal rate, not the pace of the increase, but where we're going to stop. So now they're talking about, oh, we're going to stop. Where are we going to stop? But we're not at the stop point yet, right? As uh, Chair Powell said, uh, quote, pausing our rate hikes is premature. That's a slap on the side of the head of the stock market investors and speculators who keep saying, oh, the Fed's going to stop, the Fed's going to stop, and then the stock market goes up. They're manipulating the stock market, and they do that to make money. <clears throat> well, the Fed said, uh, and they've done this like two or three times so far this year, the Fed said, uh, stop it, slap, slap, you know. We're going to continue raising because our mission is to stop inflation, right? How much more will they raise? It depends on the next CPI report and the December jobs report for November. All right? Could be seven and uh, 75 basis points again. They're not at five yet. You know? They got another 4% to go. Oh, but I think it'll be financial instability if they go over five, right? Watch Credit Suisse Bank in big trouble in Europe and other EU banks. Watch the shadow banks in the United Kingdom, sovereign debt in emerging markets, dollarized corporate debt in emerging markets in Latin America. Watch all that. Those are the candidates for financial instability. Right. Okay. And as I've said, the Fed cannot raise rates, cannot raise rates high enough to stop inflation. They will precipitate a deep recession. They've the decided on that already. Just a question of how deep, right? Uh, but as I said, they can shake out demand factors contributing inflation, but they're not going to be able to shake out supply, uh, the sanctions and the supply chains, right? And rising unit labor costs and corporate price gouging. Fed can't do anything about that. Right? But the capitalists don't care. You know, they do not want inflation to continue, especially, you know, in Europe where it's exacerbated by the currency crisis, because if that happens, the value of their investments, their wealth declines proportionally. You know, if, if the British pound falls 25 percent, then the value of assets held in pounds collapses 25 percent. And the big capitalists, the. Uh, and their bond vigilantes don't like that. So uh, they turn their central bank loose on everybody, and they don't give a shit if you have a deep recession. They just care about their asset values. 
And that's what's going on in, in the U.K. and here and, and in Europe and in Japan. That's what's going on now. That's why they decided monetary policy. They're going to use it. And to whatever extent they need, they don't care what happens to the rest of us. They just want to protect those asset values. Right? Uh, getting a 2% inflation, not going to happen. Uh, deep recession, eh, you'll get down to 3 4 4.5%, and that's it because it's supply-driven. But the Fed's going to keep doing that, right? Yeah, and uh, that's what we have to face. And uh, election, gee, I didn't talk enough about election. Well, let me make it real quick here, right? Republicans are going to win. They're going to take at least five to ten seat margin in the House, and I believe one or two seats in the Senate. Once they win, what you're going to see after January to come is austerity, right? Because the recession means Tax revenues are going to collapse for the government. Deficit is going to double as a result because it's mostly determined 60% by tax revenues. They're not going to stop their spending on war. They may cap what they spend on Ukraine, but they're going to increase what they spend on the future war with China. So defense spending is not going to slow. Revenues are going to collapse. How do you, what do you think they're going to do next? Well, they're going to go after social programs to try to make up the difference, including Social Security on the chopping block. And the Republicans, when they control both houses, will be able to do it. The only question is, you know, what will Biden do? Will Biden go along with it? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. Will he fall asleep at the wheel again and say, oh, okay, you yeah. know? That could happen. I'm not too often picking Social Security. You know, the guy never really strongly supported Social Security. He believed he should raise the retirement age significantly. So uh, watch next year's recession, continued inflation, maybe a little less, austerity, an attack on social programs. That's what's coming because the election is a done deal. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, I think the the issues are inflation and crime and the economy. All the polls show it. But the Democrats are out there pushing identity politics still. You know, oh, SCOTUS and the Supreme Court. No, January 6th are the only people on the belt line care about. Right. And all these Identity issues, some of them are getting nervous and starting to talk about uh, economic issues, but most of them are don't care, <laughs> you know. Uh, so they're so out of touch. Democrats are out of touch, and they're going to get they're going to get their butt whipped here, I think, on Tuesday. Now, I don't think that's a great thing necessarily, but that's you know, I'm just saying what I think is going to happen because Biden has run the economy terribly. And the big problem is his war. He's more concerned about throwing $100 billion at Zelensky in Ukraine than he is about the economic issues in this country. And that kind of wraps it up, in my opinion. So uh, I think we're just about through at that. We'll see what happens with the election. Uh, and I'll either have to eat my hat or tell you next time I told you so. Uh, whatever. Uh, so that's it for the show today. I'm out of here.